Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This is part two of a two-part episode, Helter Skelter Special. Today's episode contains details of extremely violent murders and other assaults. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The day after the murders on Cielo Drive, a couple of people from the family were watching the news on TV in a trailer. They saw the people that were murdered the night before were famous people. Leslie Van Houten asked Patricia Krenwinkel to tell her more about it. Van Houten said in an interview many years later, to think that she was strong enough in her belief to be able to go and kill. She said she wanted to do it too. The next day, Manson gathered a larger group. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Grogan, who was then called Clem, and Linda Kasabian. Charlie went with them and he told them where to go. Manson went up to the door of the LaBianca's house with a gun. He forced his way in and tied up the LaBianca's, telling them it was just a robbery and he wasn't going to hurt them. Charlie went back to the car and told them to go in and do what Tex told them to do. He then spoke to Tex and told him to make sure everybody did something. Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten went in. Krenwinkel went into the kitchen and got knives for her and Van Houten. Watson was armed with a bayonet. Tex told the girls to take Mrs. LaBianca into the bedroom. Van Houten took a pillowcase from the bed and put it over Rosemary's head. She unplugged the lamp next to the bed and wrapped the cord around the pillowcase. Rosemary could hear Leno crying out in the living room as he was getting stabbed. The lamp was still attached to the cord, and Rosemary swung the lamp cord with the lamp in Leslie's direction. Van Houten knocked the lamp out of her hands and rustled her down. Krenwinkel stabbed her but hit the collarbone. The knife blade bent. Van Houten ran out into the hallway to call Tex. Watson went into the bedroom, and both he and Van Houten stabbed Rosemary LaBianca. Rosemary LaBianca was stabbed 41 times. Meanwhile, Krenwinkel was out in the living room stabbing Leno in the abdomen with the carving fork. Seven times. Then she stabbed him 12 times with a knife. She was the one to carve war into his abdomen. Watson and Krenwinkel took showers at the LaBianca house after the murders. Van Houten drank chocolate milk from out of the refrigerator. Helter Skelter was written on the refrigerator with blood, but it was misspelled Helter Skelter, H-E-A-L-T-E-R. Leno had a pillowcase over his head as well. When the coroner's office took the pillowcase off, they found he had a knife stuck in his neck that went completely through the handle sticking out of one side and the blade out of the other. In the news and on TV, the LaBianca murders were at first being called the copycat murders. 
Hollywood was buying firearms and other forms of protection, such as guard dogs, after first the Tate murders and then the LaBianca murders. Leno LaBianca was a well-respected family man. He had been married before Rose and had a daughter from that marriage. Still, his daughter Louise said he was a good man and a good father. Pascalino Antonio La Bianca was born in Los Angeles, California, to Italian immigrant parents. He was called Leno by his family. His father, Antonio, owned two grocery businesses, Gateway Ranch Markets and State Wholesale Grocery Company. Leno graduated from Franklin High School a year early. He was also a star on his school's track team, earning him the nickname Flash. Leno served in the Army and fought in World War II. In 1951, Leno was elected to the Board of Directors and was named Vice President of both Gateway Markets and State Wholesale Grocery Company. After his divorce, Leno decided to sell the wholesale business that he had inherited from his father and focus on the expansion of Gateway Markets. He also graduated from USC with a degree in finance. In 1958, LaBianca met Rosemary while she was working as a waitress. The two fell in love and were married in 1960 in Carmel, California. Rosemary LaBianca was Leno's second wife. It seemed they had a special marriage. She was pretty and stylish. His daughter from his first marriage said that she thought Rose and her dad were very good friends. Rosemary LaBianca was born in Arizona. Her birth name was Ruth Catherine Elliott. After her parents divorced, Rosemary's mother found she couldn't support her children and they were placed in a home and put up for adoption. Ruth was adopted at age eight by a couple who had lost their daughter to an illness. They changed Ruth's name to Rosemary, which had been their first daughter's name. Rosemary was married once before Leno and had two children from her first marriage. August 16, 1969. L.A. County Sheriff raided Spawn Ranch at 6 a.m. They had a warrant to investigate auto theft. Manson was the last person arrested. He had been hiding in a crawl space under a building. They took everyone in, but eventually all were released because they could not determine who was responsible for the two cars stolen that they had a warrant for. The authorities did not tie together the LaBianca murders with the Tate murders at first, and they did not tie Gary Hinman's murder to either of them. A detective on the Hinman murder case called the LAPD to tell them he had a murder that he was investigating in Topanga Canyon, and he thought there were similarities. He pointed out that Gary Hinman had been killed, and then Political Piggy had been written in blood at the crime scene. They apparently didn't want to hear it or thought it was unlikely that it was related. Speculation had gone crazy on the Cielo Drive murders. It was incredibly odd to have seemingly random murders committed in such a brutal way in an exclusive neighborhood. Then add in how many people were murdered. This wasn't all by gunshots where one or two intruders would come in and just shoot them all. These people were viciously murdered up close with knives and other weapons. You would think it would take more than one, or most probably more than two, to do this. There were many theories that they would have to consider. Because of the horror movie that Roman Polanski did called Rosemary's Baby, there was even a theory it was devil worshippers. Looking at how horrific the crime scene was, that wasn't such a far-fetched idea. The newspaper and TV news theories were endless. Of course, the news was speculation of murders being related to drugs, as these were movie people and famous people, and even a Harris. Roman gave a news conference to try and put an end to the speculation. He said Sharon did not do drugs, drink, or even smoke cigarettes. 
He was very hurt by the horrible things written about his wife. Roman became a detective in his grief. He wanted to know who was responsible for his wife's and his baby's death. After the raid at Spawn Ranch, the family went back out to the desert to hole up. The girls started sharing what they had done. They told the stories as if proud for what they had done for Charlie. Susan Atkins told them how Sharon had begged for the life of her baby. The other girls did not know about this, and they were shocked. They were shocked how easily they talked about doing it. They didn't seem bothered that they had done such violent, horrendous murders. They told the other family members they did it for Charlie. Charlie told them to. Some who thought about leaving before this were now afraid to leave, knowing what they knew. Two of the girls did decide to go, though. This wasn't the loving commune that they had signed up for. They laid down to sleep further away from everyone so no one would hear them after they went to sleep. They waited to be sure everyone was asleep and then started walking. They headed up to the top of a wash and walked along there. About an hour into their walk, they saw that the dune buggies had been started up and they were out looking for the girls. The dune buggies couldn't go up to the top of the wash, but they were still very scared. They were eventually able to find a road and got lucky when a sheriff was driving by. At some point in the desert during this time, Tex had left. No one knew where he had gone. In interviews in the documentary Helter Skelter on Epics, one of the other girls said she had wanted to leave, but there was nowhere to go for her. Two other male family members left with the gold miner. At first, the miner was just staying at a small cabin on the ranch in the desert, and he hired the two guys from the family to help him go out mining each day. While they were out mining, this miner talked to them about the craziness of what they were believing, and eventually they were ready to go with him instead of Charlie. That was their way out. Not too long after these followers went away, the sheriff descended on their hideout in the desert. They loaded up the ones that were left into pickup trucks. Charlie, again, was one of the last found hiding in a small vanity cabinet under a bathroom sink. They were under arrest for burning the road grater that was out in the desert and had blocked their way. Susan was at first in jail with all the other girls, but then it was discovered she had a warrant out for her arrest and she was moved to L.A. While in L.A., she gets talking to one of her cellmates and she ends up telling her all about the Tate murders and that she was there. This led to all of those involved being investigated. It starts to come out in the news how Manson is the leader and most likely the mastermind in the killings. Atkins was indicted and her picture was everywhere in the news as she was the first to tell the story and she readily admitted she participated in the murders. Her lawyer put out a statement that she was hypnotized. She often looked like she was enjoying the attention of the cameras. She smiled at the newsmen and women and had some undiscernible quips. Authorities were at the ranch looking for evidence of other murders they thought the family might be involved in. One was Donald Shorty Shea, a movie stuntman who had met them when he was filming at the ranch. He had a disagreement with Manson and he was missing. Turns out Charlie thought that Shea had been the one to turn them in for car theft, for which they had all been arrested the first time. The word was that he had been killed and then buried out in the desert. Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel were also indicted along with Manson and Tex Watson. Linda Kasabian was five months pregnant at the time of the indictments. 
Tex Watson was born Charles Watson. Manson gave him the nickname Tex. Tex was well-liked in his small hometown in Texas. He played high school football and taught Sunday school at Copeville Methodist Church. Everyone thought he would do well when he grew up. Watson was born in Farmersville, Texas on December 2, 1945, and grew up in nearby Copeville. He was the youngest of three children. In high school, he was an honor student and an athlete. He also worked as the editor on the school paper. In 1964, he attended the University of North Texas, where he became a member of Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity. He discovered drugs in college and eventually left without completing his education. Tricia Krenwinkel was born on December 3, 1947, in Los Angeles, California, to an insurance salesman father and a homemaker mother. She attended University High School and then went to Westchester High School, both in the Los Angeles area. Patricia was often bullied at school by other students, suffering from low self-esteem, and was frequently teased for being overweight. After graduating high school, she considered becoming a nun. She decided to attend a Jesuit college, but within one semester, Patricia dropped out and moved back to California. She met Charles Manson in Manhattan Beach in 1967, along with Lynette Fromm and Mary Bruner. In later interviews, Krenwinkel stated that she had sex with Manson the first night they met and that he was the first person who told her she was beautiful. Susan Denise Atkins was born on May 7, 1948, in San Gabriel, California. She was the second of three children. Her parents were alcoholics. Her mother died when she was 15, and her father then abandoned the family. She dropped out of high school to support herself and moved by herself to San Francisco. In early 1967, while staying with friends, Susan Atkins met Charles Manson, and by summer, they were all on a road trip. Leslie Van Houten was born on August 23, 1949, in the Los Angeles suburb of Altadena. She grew up in a middle-class, church-going family along with an older brother and two adopted siblings. Her mother and father divorced when she was 14. At 17, she became pregnant and was forced by her mother to undergo an abortion. Van Houten's mother later informed her that the procedure could not be called an abortion as the fetus was too mature. She instructed the girl to bury the late-term aborted baby in their backyard. Van Houten said after this she felt very distant with her mother and harbored intense anger toward her. Authorities were looking for the bloody clothes that the family members were wearing that night after the murders. Manson had told them to take the clothes to change into, and they had done that. News reporters found the bloody clothes laying down the hill where the killers had thrown them out the window of the car as they were driving away. A gun was also found, but months after the killing, and it wasn't linked to the killing until many months after it was found. A journalist went out to Spawn Ranch and talked to some of the family members who were still there. He got the story about the race wars and the supposed message from the Beatles about helter-skelter. He wrote a quick book called Five to Die and got it out just a few months before the trial. Then in the trial, the motive for the killings was said to be the upcoming race wars that Charlie was predicting and that he got the idea from the Beatles album. The prosecution did not have to prove what the motive was for the killings, just that they did it. Manson, during trial and in days leading up to the trial, interacted with the press and made quips to them whenever he was being led to and from the courtrooms, and the cameras were on him. 
He carved an X on his forehead and had the scab scar during all of this. A lawyer said it was a symbolic gesture to say that he had X'd himself out of society at large. Some of the girls also X'd their own foreheads and sat outside the Hall of Justice in support of Charlie. Some said that Charlie was the puppet master even in jail. He had Sandy Good and Squeaky Fromm talking for him, saying all the good things about him. Ivor Davis, the journalist who wrote the book Five to Die, was there on the first day of trial and he saw Squeaky Fromm, and she knew who he was and that he had written the book, which did not say good things about Charlie. He said that she asked him, Do you know what it feels like to have a sharp knife slip down your throat? He went right into the courthouse and called his wife and told her to take his one-year-old daughter and leave the house until further notice. Linda Kasabian testified against Charlie in his trial. She said she was a lookout during the murders. She was only 21 and already a mother of two. She had only been with the family about a month before the murders. The prosecution gave her a tentative offer of immunity if she would say on the stand and tell everything that she knew. By this time, Susan Atkins had withdrew her previous testimony and denied everything she said before, so there was no one from inside the group testifying against Charlie or the others. Linda Kasabian testified to being eyewitness to two of the murders. She said that she and three of the others had just climbed over the fence of the house on Cielo Drive when Tex Watson shot a man in a car who was driving out of the driveway. She stayed outside and the rest went into the house. She heard screams coming from inside the house and saw people running out. She stated that it was all unbelievably horribly terrible. She saw Watson stabbing one man on the lawn near the house. She also saw Patricia Krenwinkel with a knife chasing a woman across the lawn. Kasabian turned away when shown a photo of Stephen Parent, the teenager who had been shot in his car. Kasabian said he had begged not to be hurt. Barbara Hoyt left the Barker Ranch sometime after the murders. After the family learned that she was going to testify, she got death threats from Gypsy and Sandy, Squeaky and Clem, almost daily. Barbara Hoyt testified that Susan Atkins had said, Sharon Tate came out and said, what's going on here, or something like that. And Susan said back to her, shut up, woman. Barbara also said that Sharon was the last to die and had to watch the others go first. Tex Watson had managed to avoid extradition from Texas to California for nearly a year. His lawyers said he couldn't get a fair trial in California. He eventually did have to come back to California for trial, but it was after Manson and the girls were tried. Gypsy, real name Catherine Scher, said that Charlie told her to go to Beverly Hills Hotel and to intimidate the lead prosecutor who was staying there. She stood outside his hotel room window with a king snake wrapped around her. When he came out, she asked him if he wanted to pet her snake. The defendants in the Manson trial had to be removed from the courtroom repeatedly and put in a room with speakers so they could still hear the trial going on. Manson himself had a complete meltdown and jumped up on the table in front of the judge while wielding a sharpened number two pencil. He told the judge, somebody ought to cut your head off, man. He started out by interrupting the opening testimony saying to the judge, you are trying to use this courtroom to kill me. You want me dead. The judge told Manson to be quiet. He ordered him to be quiet or he would have him removed. The minute I see you are going to kill me, you know what I'm going to do, said Manson. The judge said, no, what are you going to do? Manson jumped up on the council table with a pencil and yelled to the judge, how about this? 
How about his head should be cut off? And then he said, I will have you removed if you don't stop. I have a little system of my own, said Manson. He then hurled himself in the air towards the judge. The bailiff tackled him in midair. The judge said, Let the record reflect that Mr. Manson has made a lunge for the bench and is now being subdued by the deputies. Manson and the girls were moved to another room with a loudspeaker so they could listen to the trial as it continued. The prosecutor had other witnesses who had been at Spawn Ranch come in to testify. They talked about Helter Skelter and Charlie's prophecy that there would be a race war. Terry Melcher testified. He was the one who had rented the house before Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. He thought Manson was looking for him and sent the killers to that house for him. He testified that he never offered Manson a recording contract and had thought the music was just average. Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins had left the family while in the desert and started to work for the gold miner. They both testified for the prosecution as well. While still under Charlie's spell, Brooks had been told by Charlie to sneak into the sheriff's home and cut his throat. Poston said that he did not do as Charlie wished. Paul Watkins testified about hearing Charlie talk often about killing rich whites in the suburbs and making it look like blacks had done it. Diane Lake, a former family member, was scared to testify. Scared she would hear Charlie and he would intimidate her. But she was okay, and she didn't see him the way that she used to anymore. Manson addressed the court for one hour without notes. The jury was not present. It was said to be like a dissertation about his life. He did say at one point in it that he had killed no one and that he had ordered no one to be killed. After this, the judge said they would bring in the jury and said maybe Manson wanted to say something to them. He said he had already said it. He was not going to testify, and he told the girls not to testify. Right after the prosecution and the defense rested their case, Leslie Van Houten's lawyer, Ron Hughes, disappeared. He had been heard to say that maybe Leslie's case should be separated from the rest of the families. Now Manson and the girls were having their trial together, but Tex Watson was not there yet. They were still trying to extradite him, so it was just Manson and the girls. But when Manson heard about the separating of Leslie's case, he became angry. Leslie had not been at both murder scenes. She was only at the La Bianca murder, and there was some debate as to how much she had participated in those murders. Four months after Ronald Hughes disappeared, his body was found in a river. The attorney who went in to take Hughes' place was going to go in and ask for a mistrial for Van Houten. When court opened, though, a scuffle took place between the girls and the matrons. Leslie Van Houten was refusing to have the new guy as her attorney. She refused to sit down in the courtroom, and she hit the bailiffs. Manson attorney Irving Kanarek went on talking for five days with his summation to the jury. It was 42 hours of deliberation before the jury gave the verdict. Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten smiled and talked to each other. Charles Manson smiled. Then the verdicts were read. California Conspiracy Rule Any member of a conspiracy was equally guilty of any crimes committed by his co-conspirators. Charlie was the obvious head of the conspiracy, and that is how he was found guilty on seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. 
the girls were all found guilty as well. The jurors then had to continue to be sequestered for the penalty phase of trial to decide life or death sentences. In 1970, there was still a death penalty in California. Manson shaved his head, and then the girls shaved their heads. Manson also turned the X on his forehead into a swastika. Charlie gave the girls a mission. They were going to testify and confess and say that Charlie had nothing to do with it. Gypsy, Catherine Cher, was in jail at the time, and one of the girls from the family went to visit her. She put a piece of paper up to the glass and said that she needed to testify, and this is what she needed to say. It said, read every word. Charlie is going to be in the courtroom listening to every word. You dig? Charlie always used to say to them, you dig? In the testimonies from the three convicted girls during the penalty phase, they changed their stories from what really happened to blame each other and themselves, but not Charlie, so that they could save his life. The jury decided on the death penalty. The judge gave Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten death sentences. He said for seven senseless deaths. Some members from the family went to visit Charlie. Squeaky was one of them. Squeaky gave acid to the group that was left and told them that Charlie wanted them to show the world how much they loved him. They started around the area of Whiskey A Go-Go. The Whiskey A Go-Go is an iconic nightclub where many famous rock bands started out. It's near West Hollywood. They crawled all the way from the Whiskey A Go-Go to the courthouse. There is film footage of the five of them on the Epics documentary Helter Skelter 2020. They were crawling on the sidewalks and the people all around them looking at them or pointing to them. Catherine Cher said the police just checked them to see if they had warrants. She was glad she had warrants out for traffic tickets and they took her and Mary Bruner in, but the others had to keep crawling on. She said that it was okay at first with the acid kicking in, but then it became excruciating physically and to be crawling on that cement and for so far. The Manson family was most definitely a cult. The kids thought they were in love and peace type family or commune, but it was ran like a cult, and the people in it had the cult-like devotion. They have love and complete acceptance at first. The love and acceptance from the leader is not conditional like it is in the outside world, at least at first. Then there is isolation from the outside world, so no news or media type influence, just the leader's influence. No books except the Bible. Charlie goes over the Bible with them, so they know how to interpret it according to him. Then after a long while, there's a period of being treated badly by the leader, whether forced sexual encounters, belittling someone, or physically hurting someone. So then the individual is thinking, whether consciously or not, that they want to get back to that place where they were getting the unconditional acceptance and feelings of love that they were getting before. So they are desperate for it and are willing to do anything to get that back, to get back to that. Tex Watson was eventually tried and was found guilty of seven counts of murder in the first degree and conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to death. While in prison, he became an ordained minister. Bobby Busolet was convicted of murder in the first degree for killing of Gary Heinemann and sentenced to death. In 1972, California Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. 
Stephen Grogan Clem was convicted of murder in the first degree for the death of Donald Shorty Shea. In 1977, he told authorities where Shorty's body was. He was released from prison in 1985. Mary Bruner got immunity for the involvement in Gary Hinman murder by becoming a witness for the prosecution. Patricia Krenwinkel is still in prison. Susan Atkins died in prison in 2009. Leslie Van Houten had a retrial and was given seven years to life. On January 30, 2019, during her second parole hearing, Van Van Houten was recommended for parole for the third time. But in June 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom overruled the parole board's recommendation, claiming the 69-year-old Van Houten was still a danger to society and had potential for future violence. She appealed the decision. In 2020, she was denied parole again. Charles Manson died in prison in 2017. In the early 1980s, Stephen Kay, who had worked for the prosecution in the trial, teamed up with Sharon Tate's mom, Doris. Leslie Van Houten had somehow managed to get over 900 signatures on a petition for her parole. Together, Stephen Kay and Sharon Tate's mom, Doris, collected over 350,000 signatures supporting the denial of parole. Doris Tate became a vocal advocate for victims' rights. For the rest of her life, she campaigned against the parole of each of the Manson killers. Roman Polanski gave away all of his possessions after the murders, unable to bear any reminders of the period that he called the happiest I ever was in my life. He remained in Los Angeles until the killers were arrested. In 1979, his film Tess was dedicated to Sharon. A quote from Polanski. Since Sharon's death, and despite appearances to the contrary, my enjoyment of life has been incomplete. In moments of unbearable personal tragedy, some people find solace in religion. In my case, the opposite happened. Any religious faith I had was shattered by Sharon's murder. It reinforced my faith in the absurd. A separate note, I am aware of the controversy in Roman Polanski's life years after this happened, but I feel it has no place here. I wanted to represent the people as who they were then, when this happened, as well as soon after or at least as best as I could, based on the information I was able to attain. The main sources for this two-part episode are as follows. The main source was the brand new Helter Skelter documentary that came out in 2020. It's available on Epix. I'm not sure if it'll be available somewhere else um, sometime soon, but it's definitely worth um, watching. It's, I believe it's six parts, so it's very long, um, and there's a lot of detail, and it really uh, brings you back to that time period, what was going on, and uh, a lot of interesting information. Uh, Another one was Wikipedia, of course, always using Wikipedia for lots of different facts. Allthat'sinteresting.com slash Abigail Folger. Author is Gina DeMero. All That's Interesting.com, Wojak Frakowski by Natasha Ishek. All That's Interesting.com slash Gary Hinman by Katie Serena. And Jeff Gwynn, uh, author of Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, um, mainly as he was interviewed in the Epics documentary. 
Thank you for listening and always be safe.